Hello everyone, this is Tom Fox, I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to episode 356 of the FCPA Compliance Report. The FCPA Compliance Report is sponsored by Advanced Compliance Solutions, and I'm pleased to announce a new service offering from Advanced Compliance Solutions. I call it the story of compliance. If you have a product or service in the compliance space, and you would like to tell the story of how your product or service can help a company prevent, detect, and remediate through an ethics and culture-centered story podcast, this is the service offering for you. I will do, th- do so through a series of podcasts with text over a six-podcast story arc. If you have any questions, please give me a shout at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. Today I have with me Don Murphy-Johnson and Lauren Bergman of Miller & Chevalier. They are the co-editors of the fabulous resource called Executives at Risk, a quarterly newsletter of key developments of individual white-collar prosecutions. We take a look at this quarter's newsletter, and we talk about compelled testimony, the VW, excuse me, the German expansion of its investigation into the VW scandal. We talk about the German prosecutorial raid on VW's law firm, Jones Day, and what it may mean going forward. We consider the uh, prosecution of the Chief Compliance Officer, Thomas Hadar, in, who is the CCO at MoneyGram, and what it might mean for individual prosecutions of Chief Compliance Officers. We have more criticism from Judge Rakoff on the sentencing guidelines. And finally, we talk about the enforcement agencies continue to focus on individual defendants and debate this point back and forth in the context of comments from Deputy Assistant Attorney General Rod Rosenstein. It's a fascinating episode. It's a great resource. I'm sure you will enjoy this podcast. The FCPA Compliance Report is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network, the only podcast network in compliance. Thank you for listening. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again, back for another episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. Today, I have back with me Lauren Brigerman, and I have her um, colleague, Don Murphy-Johnson. They are both lawyers at Miller & Chevalier, and they are co-executive editors of an incredible resource um, called Executives at Risk Key Developments. It's a newsletter that uh, comes out uh, on a quarterly basis, and although it really focuses um, more broadly on white-collar than um the typical FCPA type newsletter. It's got a lot of information that every compliance practitioner needs to at least be aware of uh, for individuals, individual investigations, in potential individual liability, and where all of this might be going for executives so that you, I think, uh, for the compliance professional, can really adequately talk to your executives about uh, risk that they may be running personally. So with that somewhat long-winded introduction, ladies, uh, thank you once again for putting out the newsletter, and thank you for taking the time to visit with me today. It's our pleasure. Thanks for inviting us. So uh, let's hop right into it uh, with uh, what I want to talk about is I find just a fascinating concept and something that I've been uh, trying to write about and think about, and that's the um, concept of compelled testimony. We had the Second Circuit uh, decision overturning two convictions in the London Interbank uh, LIBOR uh, currency manipulation investigation. I think I read that we had another conviction, if not overturned today, 
um, the trial judge uh, wouldn't let uh, testimony in uh, based on the compelled testimony doctrine. This has really very broad uh, implications for a wide variety of cases the Department of Justice brings, including FCPA, including LIBOR, uh, including 4X, and, and really uh, a lot of white-collar cases. So I, I was wondering if uh, you all might be able to unpack what compelled testimony is and what this may do for the life of a prosecutor going forward. Sure, happy to. So, Tom, as you mentioned, this is a decision that came out of the Second Circuit in the LIBOR currency manipulation investigation. And let me give you just some background on the case itself and, and the facts before we talk about exactly what the implications of the <laughs> ruling are. Um, the case involves two British citizens, Anthony Allen and Anthony Conti, and they were charged in the U.S. with wire fraud based on allegations that they had submitted false exchange rate information that ultimately became part of the LIBOR rate. They were ultimately found guilty at trial, and then they appealed. At trial, the government relied heavily on the testimony of a cooperating witness whose name was Paul Robson. And Robson had pled guilty as part of the scheme and also agreed to testify against the other two. Now, what's interesting about this is that Alan, Conti, and Robson all had given what you refer to as compelled testimony in the UK. In the UK, the Financial Conduct Authority had been investigating similar allegations. And as part of their investigation, they had given what's called direct use immunity to the individuals for their compelled testimony. Um, the FCA ultimately didn't move forward with any charges, but as part of the proceeding, they gave access to Robson of Allen and Conti's actual transcripts of their statements. So Robson reviewed the testimony of Allen and Conti in detail, and he also annotated a hard copy of the document. Well, later, he ultimately testified at trial in the U.S., and his story changed significantly when he made his statement in the UK, which was compelled, it was exculpatory of himself and the other two. But then, of course, by the time he testified at trial in the US, he was testifying against them. So um, Alan and Conti both appealed and argued that the government's case had been tainted by Robson's testimony. The Second Circuit relied on a key case. If you're a white collar practitioner, you'll know it is Castigar v. US. And under Castigar, where a defendant is given immunity for testimony, the testimony can't be introduced against the defendant. But in addition, the government also has to show that the entire case is untainted by the prior testimony. So the court here found that Robson's testimony had tainted the government's case. And the two key reasons behind the ruling were that Robson was a key witness to the government's case and that Robson's trial testimony had differed materially, materially from his original interview with the FCA. So as a result, the Second Circuit actually overturned the two convictions. So that's background on the case, and I'm happy to talk about our impressions of the implications, if that would be helpful. So let me just start off by throwing this one out. Uh, do you think the Second Circuit came to the correct decision? Was this a, a controversial decision? Uh, did you see the government's arguments really strongly? Uh, obviously, they strongly went the other way, but the, the, did the government really you know, take one on the chin here on this one? 
I would say it's a unique application of the Castigar case. I don't know that it's considered controversial, but it's interesting when you look at commentary in the bar. Some people are saying that it will have big implications for cross-border investigations going forward, and some think it's very uniquely tied just to the narrow facts of the case. So it kind of it remains to be seen how significant it will be. But as you pointed out, just on Friday, there was a federal George in New York who ruled that another defendant in a LIBOR investigation, who's a Deutsche Bank trader named Gavin Black, was entitled to a Castigar hearing. And so the government ultimately is going to have to prove there that its indictment wasn't based on Black's compelled testimony in the UK. So clearly it's already having an impact on the LIBOR investigation and whether it will go further remains to be seen. So uh, what about maybe uh, down the road, do you think this is going to really handcuff prosecutors or that they'll just obtain the evidence uh, in another way? Well, it's interesting. So the Justice Department has already filed for on-bank review of the decision. And in their brief, they file, uh, they present a very doomsday story of what could happen for their investigations. They say something like they... Currently, the fraud section in the antitrust division has something like 50 cross-border investigations that are currently ongoing, and 36 of the jurisdictions that are involved use compelled testimony, so the implications could be very big. And they also say that they've already declined to pursue several investigation leads because of the Second Circuit decision. Now, whether or not that's really a doomsday story or is accurate is unclear, but clearly the government is saying that they would be hamstrung by this decision and would be more reticent to pursue future investigations in parallel with other jurisdictions. Uh, it sounds like something that I guess my sense would be that the government would find a way to uh, uh, obtain other evidence, if not direct testimony, but it does really have lots of implications uh, I think for corporate internal investigations, if uh, if it's done overseas, that information is turned over to a foreign regulator as a part of a self-disclosure or something else, uh, uh, whether forced or not. And so um, I guess I would say that we're just going to have to wait and see uh, if this case is really uniquely suited to these facts or if there's a broader um, principle out there that uh, may come out of it. Hey, I agree. So now let's turn to every one of everyone's favorite scandals, uh, certainly our favorite scandal out of Germany, the Volkswagen scandal. And we had a couple <laughs> of developments, uh, one of which was uh, the German uh, prosecutorial authorities actually indicted a German national. And I think this uh, was the first one. We've had uh, the American authorities indict, I believe, six German nationals, uh, one American and one Italian. The American mm -hmm. uh, has pled guilty. Uh, he was arrested in the United States. We had one German national who made the, uh, I can't believe, the grievous error to travel to the United States, uh, but he did, and he was arrested. We had one uh, Italian national who was uh, arrested, I believe, by German authorities and uh, may be um, sent to the United States for trial. But this was really uh, the first German arrest. So uh, do you guys uh, see this uh, first arrest as any indication the German government may actually uh, do something in this case? I, I think so. Partly because this individual, Wolfgang Hotz is his name, is fairly high up and he's been detained. Um, so I think the pressure will be on 
prosecutors to get him to flip and basically to testify against others around him. So Wolfgang Hotz is the former head of engine development at Audi and also the former R&D head at Porsche. So he was very high up. So that means that they're obviously treating it very seriously. The press has indicated that at least 50 individuals are under investigation. And so we'll just have to see if Hotz's arrest will lead to future arrests in Germany. Well, we'll definitely keep our eye on that one. Lauren, in our last podcast, you and I talked about a German prosecutorial raid on Jones Day, uh, the law firm for Volkswagen, and they're actually uh, picked up um, uh, lawyers' records in that investigation, and uh, we both kind of marveled that uh, we hadn't really seen this type of in- raid on a lawyer's office before in an international investigation, but there have been some developments in this case. Uh, could you maybe take us uh, from where we uh, were in our last podcast on this? Sure. So I think it was in March that the German authorities raided Jones Day's offices, and Jones Day represents the supervisory board of the company and the internal investigation. It's unclear why Jones Day was raided, although in the press there were thoughts and allegations that potentially Jones Day was not being cooperative. Um, Jones Day ultimately chose to challenge the deci- or challenge the actions of the German authorities to raid their offices and collect documents. And they lost in the lower court. The lower court found the seizure of the documents to be lawful. They, um, Jones Day or VW then challenged the decision up to the regional court and the court upheld it. And now it's before the highest court as I understand it in Germany, the highest local court anyways. And the court has temporarily prohibited prosecutors from accessing documents while they reach a conclusion. But my understanding is it's temporary. And so while the prosecutors can't see the documents now, um, you know, if the court system there is anything like here where uh, on appeal, it's much more typical that an appellate court will uphold a lower decision than my concern is that prosecutors ultimately will receive these documents. So I guess on this one, we're just going to have to wait and see where the German courts shake out. But uh, I think we both were really marveling at this um, development in our last podcast. And uh, I think we may be marveling about this uh, in the future as well. Uh, one, One case that it was of a lot of concern for the compliance community and the chief compliance officer was the individual, I believe, SEC enforcement action against Thomas Hadar coming out of the MoneyGram case. And he was uh, banned for three years um, from being a CCO, basically, and also f- fined $250,000. Um, uh, some, some have opined that's not very much money. I think to any individual, it's, it's a lot of money. But uh, this was really the first time we'd seen a chief compliance officer in the crosshairs of um, uh, either an OFAC or money laundering uh, type allegation. A lot of people were very concerned about this case. I have to say that when I read the case, it was not clear to me from the SEC enforcement action whether Hadar (coughs) actively uh, participated in the scheme to set up the uh, number of uh, or allow the number of suspicious transactions to go through, or that uh, being 
an active participant or at least actively negligent or simply was passively negligent in that he said uh, this is a risk, this is a risk that could go uh, over the line and become illegal, and we need to manage this risk with uh, these resources, and he was not given those resources. So with, with my confusion on this case, uh, where do you all see uh, this case from the chief compliance officer perspective? So, Tom, this is Dawn. Lauren has been kind enough to answer your question so far. I think the rest of your questions are probably going to be directed towards me. Um, so, I think this case for compliance officers can be limited to its facts. So, to back up a little bit, Hader worked for MoneyGram International, which is a global money services business. And way back in 2012, MoneyGram entered into a deferred prosecution agreement with DOJ and agreed to pay $100 million in restitution to fraud victims. Um, and all of that related to MoneyGram's admission that it aided and abetted wire fraud and failed to maintain an effective anti-money laundering program. Um, and underlying that was this mass marketing fraud scheme um, that generally targeted the elderly and other vulnerable, vulnerable groups, excuse me. And it, it included scams employees that I'm sure a lot of people have heard of where someone will pose as a relative and say they're urgently in need of money and I need you to wire it to me. Or... Um, they would tell victims that they'd won a cash prize. And in either sort of situation, the perpetrators required the victims to send them funds through MoneyGram, whether, you know, staging themselves as the purported relative or in the case of things like prizes, um, they'd say that the victims needed to pay things like upfront taxes or processing fees in order to get the prize money. So where this comes to hater is that MoneyGram received thousands of complaints by consumers who said they were victims of the fraud. Um, so, for example, in 2004, there were 1,500 re reports of this sort of fraud in the United States and Canada. And by 2008, that number of reports went up to almost 19,000. And during that entire period, Hayter was the CCO at MoneyGram. So then... After MoneyGram has entered into its DPA, you fast forward to December of 2014, and it was FinCEN, the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, that issued a $1 million civil penalty against Tater um, because he not only oversaw MoneyGram's fraud department, which collected all of those complaints I just mentioned from consumers, but he was also in charge of MoneyGram's AML compliance department, which was supposed to ensure that the company was complying with the Bank Secrecy Act requirements. And so, in essence, FinCEN was saying that Hader failed to prevent MoneyGram from making all of these fraudulent transfers. Um, so, after FinCEN issued its civil penalty, the Treasury Department filed a civil complaint seeking to enforce the penalty and to enjoin Hader from employment in the financial industry writ large. Um, so by May of 2017, Hader and FinCEN and Treasury settled the claims. He admitted 
that he failed to terminate specific MoneyGram agents after being presented with information that strongly indicated that those agents were involved in fraud. And he admitted that he structured MoneyGram's AML program such that the analyst responsible for filing suspicious activity reports with FinCEN generally didn't have the information they needed to do so. They just weren't aware of all of the facts that they needed to have. So he agreed to a three-year ban on serving in a compliance function for any money transmitter, and he agreed to the $250,000 fine that you mentioned. So like you said, that's still a significant amount for any individual. And it is, in fact, one of the biggest fines that FinCEN has ever imposed on an individual. And I think the distinguishing factor here is that FinCEN said that Hader was presented with various ways to address what FinCEN called clearly illicit use of the financial institution, and yet he failed to take action. So I think, you know, FinCEN is using this settlement the monetary part of it and the ban to, um, you know, to make a statement that compliance professionals really need to be more rigorous in their oversight of their compliance programs in terms of making sure they're up to date, making sure that information is getting to the people who need it, and that when there are problems, that those problems get addressed. So it sounds like really from your recitation that, uh, Based upon the facts of this case, and, and really that, Hadar um, was was right in line to be prosecuted, and this is not something that chief compliance officers need to uh, really worry about if they are doing their day-to-day -day, uh, jobs. Well, I think so long as compliance officers keep up with what they need to be doing, yes, but they always need to be concerned that they're, they're following the rules and that they're keeping things up to date. And, and especially the whole, the whole part here about having a system that gets information to the people who need it and acting when you actually have information in your hands that there's something fishy going on. Well, maybe there's more there than, uh, than I had considered. I may have to uh, go back and take a look at that. Uh, next up, Dawn, um, we have our good friend, Judge Rakoff. And uh, he uh, is continually commenting to us through his uh, written decisions and opinions. And this time it was on uh, re reducing a sentence for a for former portfolio manager um, based upon what he called the ridiculous, absurd, and barbaric uh, <coughs> sentencing guideline suggestion. Uh, so why don't you take us through this case? Because it's always great when Judge Rakoff gets on a roll. That's right. And, you know, just to set the stage, Judge Rakoff has been talking about the guidelines for a long time now, and he is clearly not a fan of them. Um, so the defendant in this case, like you said, was a portfolio, man portfolio manager um, at an asset management company, and he was indicted for um, securities and wire fraud relating to um, mismarking of securities in a fixed income hedge fund, which overstated the fund's liquidity. And the, at the end of the day, the effect of that scheme was that the fund's net 
asset value was overstated, often by tens of millions of dollars, and that meant that the investors in the fund overpaid management and performance fees to the asset management company, from which the defendant then benefited. So um, he went to trial, and there was a jury, and it took six days, <clears throat> and he was convicted. Um, and at sentencing, the I'm not sure if everyone who listens knows this, but once upon a time, the federal sentencing guidelines were mandatory, meaning that you the court did a bunch of calculations, and in financial crime cases like this one, those calculations were largely based on the amount of monetary loss involved. And so you do some math and you come up with this range of months that the defendant would be subjected to in terms of length of imprisonment. And for two decades or so, the federal courts were required to apply those guidelines and they were required to sentence the defendant to a sentence somewhere in that range. Um, and the guidelines had, you know, a, an, a legitimate purpose, which was to make sentences between similarly situated defendants who committed similar crimes more uniform. But the, the federal judiciary felt very, very hamstrung by this. And, and judges like Judge Rakoff have spoken out for a long time. So then you get to 2005, and the Supreme Court issued its decision in a now famous case called United States versus Booker. And there they said, well, we're not going to dismantle the whole guideline system, but we're going to say that it's not mandatory anymore. So, hey, judges, you have to start with your guidelines calculation. That's your starting point. It's a baseline. And then um, from there, you can depart upward or downward, and you just need to provide really good reasons for doing so, or we're going to reverse you on appeal. So here, um, well, actually, before I get to this particular case, statistics show that judges are using their discretion um, in a lot of cases, in, in more than half cases that, that go to sentencing. 47% um, of all sentences issued in 2015 fell within the guidelines range, um, but 51% fell below the guidelines, and just about 2% were above the guidelines. Um, so Judge Rakoff, in this case, was in that 51%. Uh, and as you mentioned in your introduction, uh, he had some choice things to say about the guidelines. And if I can, I just wanted to read a little bit more from the transcript because I thought it, it explained his position pretty well. Um, he said, I can't help but noting that this case once again demonstrates the absurdity of the sentencing guidelines. The sentence is driven largely by the gain amount, but there are other adjustments of a more technical nature. And under the adjustments that the government originally argued for, and I think are so supported by the evidence, the guideline sentence would have been eight years or more, which is just ridiculous, absurd, barbaric in some respects in connection with someone like Mr. Lumiere. And then he went on and said and explained, so there's also a statute, 18 U.S.C. 3553A, which says um, 
that all sentences entered must be sufficient but not greater than necessary to reflect the purposes of sentencing. So some of those factors are just punishment, the nature of the person's offense, the nature of the person's character, the need for specific deterrence and things like that. So um, Judge Rakoff mentioned a few of those factors and said, it is a terrible thing that this country's criminal legal system has become so punitive. I mean, Mr. Lumiere is lucky that he's a white-collar defendant when one considers the kinds of sentences that courts are often forced to impose by mandatory minimums and the like on people who have none of his advantages. But even as to him, these guideline sentences would be much more typical of a brutal regime than of a proud American legal system. So in this case, he sentences the defendant to 18 months and found that that sentence was appropriate in this case. Tom, have we stumped you? But what I wanted to ask was uh, really uh, to conclude, we had a recently had a policy announcement speech from uh, Assistant Attorney General Rosenstein, and he indicated that the department was considering a, um, a new policy statement on where it might go uh, towards individual prosecutions and corporate prosecutions. It was not clear to me if this would be a um, uh, just a, a soup to nuts review with a really a new set of priorities, or if it would be a, a sort of a clarification of where this Justice Department saw its priorities. We we see these from time to time. So obviously, we had the Yates memo. Before that, we had the McNulty memo. Uh, we had the Phillips memo. Uh, we had the Holder memo when he was uh, before he became Attorney General. Um, so we've we've had a series of these memos. Uh, but I was wondering if, if you all had any kind of insights into where you think uh, this process may go for the Department of Justice. You know, again, it's one of those, we'll have to wait and see what happens, but I don't think it indicates a shift in priorities at all. I mean, Rod Rosenstein said himself that the department still is firmly committed to bringing individuals who engage in corporate misconduct to um, to task, and I think one of his his issues is that these policy pronouncements do come in the form of these memos, which are usually issued by the attorney general or the deputy attorney general, and they're addressed to the line prosecutors throughout the Department of Justice. And I think he just wants to implement a more um, transparent system. He wants to have these policies included in the U.S. Attorney's Manual, um, which is, you know, readily accessible on the internet and anyone can see it, even though, of course, in this day and age, we all see the Attorney General memos too. So 
you know, who knows if it's going to be a distinction without a difference, whether including these sorts of things in the U.S. Attorney's Manual, you know, gives it more gravitas or not. Um, I don't think so, just because, you know, Sally Yates issued the Yates memo and everyone relied on it and knows what it says. So I'm not sure whether including it in the U.S. Attorney's Manual would make a difference or not, but we'll see. Well, ladies, this has been a fascinating discussion. I've been visiting with Lauren Brigerman and Don Murphy-Johnson, both attorneys at Miller and Chevalier, Chevalier, and they are co-executive editors of the uh, great resource entitled Executives at Risk Key Developments. It's uh, We've been talking about some of the cases that interested me, at least, from the fall 2017 issue. Ladies, I wanted to thank you, uh, really, for putting this newsletter out. It's got a lot of information for um, the typical listener of this podcast, the compliance practitioner, but also uh, great information for a much wider variety. And I look forward to not only the next newsletter, but continuing the conversation after it comes out. So thank you. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. If you have not checked it out, I would uh, urge you to go over to my one-month podcast series of one month to a more effective compliance program, as this month I'm focusing on a 360-degree view of communications and compliance. It's sponsored by Dun & Bradstreet. We'll give you some really good insights in how you can improve your communications and your compliance program with all of your stakeholders. If you have listened to this podcast on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate it if you would rate our podcast as it would help in our rankings. If you have any questions on this podcast, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. This is Tom Fox. Thank you again for joining me, and I hope you join me next week for another episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. The FCPA Compliance Report is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.